Welcome back to Foster Adopt Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families, as well as professionals. My name is Sunny, and I'm an education coordinator here at Foster Adopt Minnesota. And I'm Chris, also an education coordinator here at FAM. Today, we're having a chat with three adoptees, Darcy, Shelley, and Suki, who were at Yangju Orphanage, the same orphanage where Sunny was adopted in Korea. Yangju Orphanage no longer exists. It was located in the town of Dongdushan near the DMZ, also known as the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, just south of the 38th parallel. These four women were able to connect after nearly 50 years through a website created by a soldier who volunteered at the orphanage in the late 1960s and 1970s. If you are interested in reading stories, of the Yangju orphans and soldiers who help them, please go to koreanorphanage.com. That's fabulous. All right. So we are grateful to have the three of you with us today to share your experiences. For me, it is surreal to have this newly formed Yangju sisterhood with the three of you. I grew up as an only kid, so having you in my life has nourished my soul in ways that I could not have previously imagined. So as you remember, the last time we were together, we had a feast in Suki's home. And she, when she said that we went from starving to abundance, it really hit me home, hit home for me. So thank you all for being here. For having us, Sunny. Yeah, so yeah. just so we Thanks. can kind of get everyone's voices attached, um, do you wanna, let's start with some introductions. So could you please tell us your names, the years you're at the orphanage, how old you were when you were adopted and where you grew up in the U.S. And you don't have to remember all of those, I can prompt. <laughs> so Darcy, do you wanna start? Sure, my name is Darcy Middlestead and I was in the orphanage from 1972 to 1974. I was adopted uh, to a family in uh, rural Nebraska. What else? And how about Shelly? Oh, my name is Shelly Lovegren. And I was in the orphanage from November 20th, 1975 through June 28th, 1976. Just so today is my arrival day. Ironically, it happened on today. <laughs> so I am celebrating 47 years in the United States. Um, I was seven months old when I landed in Minnesota. I grew up in a small town about 40 miles north of Minneapolis. And Suki. Hi, my name is Suki Jalali. Um, I was in the orphanage, uh, I believe, when I was five years old. So that would, I was born in 1964, or possibly 62. You know, we have a plus and minus two, four years. And we really don't know our real ages. Uh, so I don't know the month but I, that I arrived, but I do remember my parents uh, saying goodbye to me at age five. So then I grew up there until I was 14. Uh, I was in Yangju baby home uh, as a child. And when I would turn eight, they um, had me work as a house mother. And then I was working as a house mother until age 14. And I came to the U.S. to, Racha, uh, to um, Owatonna, Minnesota. I was there a very short time about two years at the most, and then I moved to Rochester, Minnesota. Um, and I've been 
probably one of the very first first waivers here. The, and I was adopted to two single women. They had never married. They were two blood sisters. Uh, they were one of the very first graduates from the University of Minnesota with a master's degree. One was a nurse and the other one was a teacher. Wow. Okay. So just so everybody knows, Suki was there for all of us. So <laughs> since she was one of the house mothers, we were all infants when we were there and she took care of us. So I was there between 1969 and 1970. Wow. And, yeah, and this is really special. It is super special, yeah. And it Definitely is through the power of social media that we found each other. Right. And Suki, you are the only one who has a conscious memory of the conditions of the orphanage. So please tell us what you remember about the conditions. Yeah. So it was a, a very small complex. Um, there was a gate in the front and there was a big open yard. And then there was probably two, three little small houses inside the courtyard. Uh, we were gated by a concrete wall. That's how they divided. We didn't have fences. We had concrete walls that divided our land and property. Um, to that recollection, uh, we had a nursery for infants up to so many years. Uh, maybe up to about a year. And then uh, we had uh, toddler homes. And usually with each house, we would sleep all in one room. Uh, I would say maybe 800 square feet. And we would all line up like sardines on the floor. Um, we slept next to each other on a mat. And we had passive heat back then because we didn't have extra electricity or gas. So we used charcoal system where they would stack these large cones of black charcoal. And then we would alternate in the middle of the night and put new charcoal underneath. So that would heat up our floors where we slept. And we didn't have a bathroom in the facility. So we had these two pumpkin size and pumpkin shaped plastic containers that we would urinate in the middle of the night. And we're supposed to only urinate and sometimes we had more than that to do. So um, sometimes you had to, we were sitting on top of that container until it got full and sometimes it overflowed because people were too sleepy. Um, we were all sleeping together. So whether it was, usually it was girls in one room and boys in another room. There were more girls than boys. There would be 80% girls and 20% boys. Um, so we would have to go to an outhouse about, um, I don't know, maybe 25 steps, 30 steps away uh, during the day. Uh, there were many incidences where we fell in the outhouse toilet um, and we crawled back out. But um, 
So yeah, I have vivid memories of those facilities. We have a playground with play, uh, a swing uh, slide. Uh, and then we mostly played um, with broken dishes as our toys. We didn't have any toys. Uh, so if we had teacups that were broken, we used those as toys. Uh, there was one red tricycle that everybody used and shared. Um, and we would most of the time play like badminton. Um, and then we, the facility was, we really didn't play, we always worked. So playing was not a part of our daily schedule. Uh, we would go out in the field and, you know, pick pea pods or vegetables and work in the farm. Um, I guess the only play element I remembered is if we had uh, vegetable uh, skins, we would make weave them into like toy chairs and toy um, furniture, and we would make toys out of those. Um, we had one superintendent, his name was Mr. Kwok, and he was the only male in the whole facility besides a couple of little boys. Um, I don't remember his wife and his daughter as much. I, I remember his daughter more. She was my lead, um, but I don't remember his wife as much. He, he didn't ever make it seem like they were a husband and wife. Uh, he was always the boss. And so we were always looking to be approved so we would work. And that was our uh, sign of love if we were given approval that you did a good job. If he said you did a good job, you work really hard, that was his way of saying, I love you. But we never had any siblings. Uh, we just thought that we were siblings naturally until we figured out that we're not really siblings. <laughs> wow. Okay, yeah. so early in the 70s, Mr. Kwok left and then the conditions deteriorated. And so um, I'd like to ask my fellow younger sisters, um, do you guys know how much you weighed at the time of your adoptions? And what do you know of how well or not well you were cared for? And how does this compare to the conditions that you encountered in the United States from your adoptive parents? Sure. So my paperwork shows on that I was about... I think it said 26 centimeters, don't quote me on that, but it was really small. Um, and I don't know at what age that was taken, um, the documented. Um, the picture that came with my file, I have been asking people about how old do you think I look in there because I'm not a baby, I'm sitting up. But I, when I came over at two years, it doesn't look like I'm two years old in that picture either. So people were thinking that I will probably about a year and a half, maybe. Um, again, on my adoption papers, my birth date has a question mark beside it. So I don't know the exact date. Um, 
what I was told is I was found abandoned and then was taken to the orphanage that I was born in Weijiangbu um, and then found on a doorstep and then um, taken to the orphanage. Um, I don't know how I was cared for in the orphanage. Um, when my paperwork coming over when I was two years old said that I was eating and sleeping well and um, doing everything that uh, I guess a baby's supposed to. Um, I was told, and I don't know if this is true or not, the reason I was two when I came over is that I was sick, too sick to fly over to the United States. And I don't know exactly what or why. Um, I have no idea. Um, then when I was adopted into the uh, my adoptive family here in the States, in Nebraska, um, I don't remember a lot about my childhood other than not so good um, things about my childhood. Um, my parents divorced when I was 12. So, and then I know there was a lot of um, emotional abuse and physical abuse. Um, so it, I don't, and maybe I repressed a lot of that, but some of the stuff I do remember was not good. So. Yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, Shelly, do you want to go? Yeah, and my story is kind of similar to Darcy's. We've talked about that a little bit in the past, but um, I actually called my mom this morning and told her that I was doing this podcast and because I had no idea how much I weighed. <laughs> and I knew I was malnourished, but I didn't know how much. So she amazingly just had that number at the top of her head. She said at seven months, which is what they estimated me to be when I came, I was 11 pounds, eight ounces. Wow. So I was pretty small for that age. Um, I did come with rat bites on my body. Um, I gave my family sleeves. My mom mm. tells of how she had to, you know, bathe me in the special stuff. And then I gave it to my family as well. Um, I have a flat head from being left in the crib for so many hours a day. And I spent the next, I probably five years eating. Um, my mom tells stories of when I would sit in my high chair and I had two brothers that were um, biological to them. So they would get up from the table and I would reach over for my high chair and grab their food <laughs> and eat it all. Um, and I guess also I learned that I like to eat dirt, which is kind of embarrassing, but I guess it, I don't know, my body was looking for a mineral that I was lacking. So my mom would have one of my brothers watch me um, when I would play in the sandbox to make sure I didn't eat too much dirt. So funny story about that. Um, years later, I was eating a watermelon and I swallowed one of the seeds. And as a child, I thought I've eaten all this dirt and now I swallowed the seed. <laughs> and I was so afraid that I was going to grow a watermelon in my stomach. It was terrifying. Aww. So to this day, I will, I will eat watermelon, but not very much. And if it has a seed in it, I will carefully go around the seed or pick it out ahead of time. So, you know, <laughs> kind of weird food things that carried over. Um, but that's all similar to Darcy. I, you know, I did have a very tough childhood. There was a lot of abuse um, by my adoptive father. So that was not fun. And then my parents divorced when I was about 14 um, because of that abuse. 
but now my mom and I are, we're pretty close. Um, it's always a work in progress. I think any mother and daughter relationship has that. So, um, but I'm, I'm grateful. And, you know, as I was chatting with, this mor- with her this morning, she just, she always knew she wanted to adopt a girl from Korea. And I asked her, how did you know that? And she said, I don't know. I just, I just knew um, at the time when she was probably teenagerish, she just had this feeling and she kind of looked into Vietnam when they were looking into adoption and that was not an option, but for some reason, Korea was just in her mind. So. Wow. No, so she feels like you belong here. Do you feel like you belong here too? You absolutely. Agree with that? Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And as hard as my childhood was, um, I don't, the more I learn about what life would have been like for me had I stayed in Korea, I think it just would have been a hard, hard journey. You know, without the without your birth father on your birth certificate, you kind of don't get that ID number, which means you can't legally work. So what are your options in life if you don't have that? And just learning about all the different social stigma of being a single mother and what they had to go through um, has made me appreciate even more that I did come over here. Mm-hmm. How about you, Suki? First of all, um, I just wanna say, I'm so sorry about Shelly and Darcy, how you, the hardships that you have had to go through. I'm really sorry for that, I apologize, and I'm sorry about that. Um, listening to you guys, makes me think like I had a cakewalk coming here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say I wasn't abused, but um, I came here to two older ladies. I think they were thinking about their future like they had never married. They were afraid of being old and no one would take care of them. So they, they thought this was a good option for them. And, and I, did turn, I did take care of them regardless. Um, I ran away from home at age 16. I lived with them a couple of years. I ran away on a Greyhound bus and I took my GED test so that I could um, escape them. And they and didn't, it didn't have to worry about them trying to hunt me down. Um, they were proud followers, followers of evangelical Christians, um, particularly Jimmy and Faye, uh, Jim Baker, and uh, Jimmy Schwagert, uh, your fanatical religious group. And I didn't feel accepted uh, in anything I did, even though I had good Christian friends and good Baptist friends and uh, good Catholic friends. I could not uh, play with them, only with born-again Christians. And I did get baptized. I did do confirmation. Uh, I did a lot of Bible camps. But um, I, the first day I arrived, I remember they um, had 25 people come to our home and they all had their hands over my over my head and praying to chase all the evil spirits I had brought from South Korea. 
<laughs> and they even went to all the closets too to make sure that all evil spirits were fled from this house. Uh, you know, in hindsight, they only knew what they knew. They had a very controlling mother who was, uh, who kept them single and didn't want them get married. She was kind of that controlling type. Uh, so she really, they really didn't know any better. And I, I forgive them. Um, but I just didn't feel loved. I didn't feel accepted. And I, I, in my mind, there was nothing wrong with me. And it, all they would remind me is something is not right with me. <laughs> so um, that was the only abuse. It's, it, I think that if you adopt somebody, you, you want to accept them for exactly the way they are. And so, um, I did go into a foster home situation for a little while, for six months, uh, um, because um, one of their sisters, who's my aunt, noticed that there was something wrong and uh, talked to the city uh, foster care and said, either I'm going to take her to my home for a while until you find a foster home for her. So she took me to her house for about four months, and then they found me a foster parent, and they happened to be a mother and a father with two teenage kids, and he was an attorney. I stayed with them about six months, and then uh, they helped me to get my GED uh, because they said, as long as you are age, under the age, you're, you're going to have to be a county problem because you're under age. So. He said, I'm just going to make your life easier. I, I'm going to find somebody to take a wrist x-ray of you and declare you as an adult. And he legally changed my date of birth to 18 years old so that I didn't have to go into the foster care system. And then I went off to college. In hindsight, it sounds like your foster parents were insightful. They were very insightful. And helping you get an education. They and were. So we have a lot of foster parents that listen to our podcast. And Good. so the, yes. the, the one of and the biggest they were things. Mr. and Mrs. Arndt in Owatonna. And um, they got me, they helped me get a job at the Rochester Methodist Hospital. And I went and got a job right away the first day. Did and I've been able to financially you, support myself. Did all of you grow up in primarily Caucasian rural. areas and families? Yeah, rural. Yep. Very rural. Yes. Very rural. rural. Nebraska is all, I don't think I met an Asian until I went to college. And then that uh, those Asians were Japanese. And I got um, mixed up. They, people, A lot of people thought I was a foreign exchange student because um, a lot of the college Asians were foreign exchange students from Japan. And so I kept getting asked, how come you speak English so well? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, because I was live here, you know, I've lived here for so long. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and I'm Suki, I, I need to also say, I'm sorry about your story too. You had <laughs> a hardship as well. Um so, I mean, I think all of us have dealt with so many different, you know, struggles. Mm -hmm. I, too, was in a foster home. Um, I ended up running away as well to get away from my adoptive family. And so for safety, 
um, and then ended up um, having great foster parents, and I still keep in touch with them. I don't, I'm not in contact much with my biological or my adoptive parents on occasion, but not much. So what was it that your foster parents did that helped you? So they really helped me. Um, I lived with them my junior, finishing up my junior year high school, my senior year of high school. And then they helped me get into college. And I 100% um, supported myself through college. But they were very instrumental in uh, recommending some colleges. And then I think part of their help with me was they were, she was a minister. Um, and so that's part of the reason why I'm still pretty strong in my faith is because I saw, and they also had a very healthy relationship and family relationship. So I got to see what a family really should be and could be. And then they also um, got to, I got to see how they interacted with their faith because I, even though I grew up in an adoptive home that was, went to church, I look back at it and I wonder if my parents kind of used religion, kind of like what Suki said, as a control or I call it as a spiritual weapon, you know, um, because they were very much, you've got to go to this, you got to pray, you got to do this, you got to do this. And yet they did not act Christian like at all. Yeah. And so that bothered me. And I, I just, could not see the two, you know, like, wait a minute, if God is this, then why are you doing this? You know, just didn't make sense. And so my foster family helped me to understand that, you know what, no, the God that we all know is, you know, the God of love. So. Oh, that's quite a contrast. Shelly, did you want to say something there? Yeah, I was, you know, echoing what Darcy said about a lot of people use religion and they abused it and they give Christ a bad name. And, you know, it was hard for me to see my adopted dad. We did go to church as well. Every, every time the doors were open, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, we were there. The snowstorms, ice storms, it didn't matter. But to see him turn around and abuse me and do the things he did to me, what is that, right? And I had to go through years of therapy to come to the process to forgive because forgiveness isn't about, you know, it's about what he did to me, but it's more about me and the healing process. So I had to go through the years of hard work, but I've come to, to see faith as my relationship with God. It's not about religion right. and it's not about, you know, denominations or whatever. Everyone has to have their own relationship with God. And I think when you find that, you find everything you think you're looking for. You find that peace, you find that purpose, and you find that hope. Okay, so you all had really good like tips for adoptees and, um, and such. So to help current adoptive parents understand their international transracial adoptees, in hindsight, what do you want to tell them to know about what it's like to grow up in a minority in their family? So I would highly recommend this book. I don't know if I can do this, but you can blot it out if not. Um, the Primal Wound by Nancy Verrier is a great book for adoptive families um, to read. Even doesn't matter what age the adoptee is. I'm actually doing a book club with adoptive parents from my um, agency, US agency. 
um, about this book. And it basically talks about the trauma wound of being an adoptee. The instinct when uh, an adoptee is removed from their biological uh, mom, that automatically has an innate wound. And this book brings out all the different ways that this wound um, shows up in an adoptee's life through, um, especially with international racism, through um, physical um, illnesses, through acting out, through, you know, a whole bunch of different things. Um, so I would highly recommend Adoptive Parents, it doesn't matter what age the adoptee is, is to read that book and, um, and just sit with it and reflect upon it and maybe have a book club about it and have discussion around that. I would I think, tell adopt. Oh, I would tell adoptive parents that sometimes it is really lonely being the only one that looks different than a family. You know, and maybe if your family's blended or there's other, you know, kids that were adopted, it's different. But with me in the small town, with everyone else around me being your standard um, Scandinavian-looking type person, <laughs> and then there's me. It was really lonely at times. And when you hear people like your brothers talking about, oh, who looks like their dad or who looks like their mom, or you get your laugh from your dad and your eyes from your mom. And then I'm just sitting there kind of not knowing any of that. And it can be, it can be a little lonely and sad at times. So just recognize that and be able to have those conversations to encourage your child and find the good things that you do know about them and really highlight those. Great words that's of advice. That's a really good answer. Yeah, that's yeah. a great answer. Um, Cause I would echo that loneliness showing. So Suki, what do you have to say? I think the most important thing for adopted parents or foster parents to understand is that we don't, have the capacity to return or receive warmth and love in the exponential point that you want to give to us. We, we, we were, we never had siblings. We never had a mom. We never had a dad. So, you know, when I came here at age 14 and they just wanted to hug me all the time and kiss me all the time, it was, it was too much for me. I had never had anybody hug me. Um, we had a superintendent that raised us, you know. Um, so, it's if if they tend if we, we if we tend to not receive love so well, it's because we never grew up with an environment that where there was hugging and kissing and um, you know affection. Uh, so that is what is interesting is I, I, they, they did not understand that why she would pull away or why would she not like that. And then what's interesting is now that they have passed in my meditations, I will even call them and talk to them and tell them I love them in my prayers and I'm able to connect with them in a spiritual level. And now that I understand that my capacity was not there, 
I'm able to tell them, thank you for loving me. Thank you for expressing love to me. And I'm sorry that I did not have the capacity to return it and receive it. But that's the, that's the way you can have closure with people. No, that's a good point because a lot of foster families, their children come over or they their children are older and they're not necessarily infants, which that's, a, yeah. you know, the primal wound is very good for helping parents understand about infants and the primal wound that they carry. Um, but for older children, just not having the capacity to return the love that the parents want or the gestures of love um, is not personal. So I, I think that's a really good point there, Suki. Um, and I, I and I all had the theme of your know, things were kind of maybe pushed on you, not how are you feeling or what you want to do. So just to keep that in mind. Yeah, oh, sure. It also reflects in your marriage, in your relationship with your spouse. And I believe that if I have the self-love that I have with what I have for myself now, and if I was to redo my whole life again, I might be a different person. No, I hear you. I hear you. That's a that's um a good point as well. Um, I think parents oftentimes take how adoptees react or don't react in the way that they would expect their biological children act. I think they take offense to that without having, without understanding the deep that we come with, even as infants. I think um, what adoptive parents and even foster parents need to realize is that just like um, natural children, there's no guidebook to raising children, but that there's a different, um, there's another level of trying to figure out um, how to raise a foster child or an adoptive child, because there's different levels of, of understanding and figuring out things. So that, but both adoptive parents and foster parents need to realize that each of those, uh, the children are humans and they need to understand and appreciate for who they are and to um, recognize their, especially with international, their culture. And I wish that my parents would have um, had me learn more about my culture when I was younger. I might've been able to appreciate it a little bit more, but instead I had to wait till I'm an adult to learn about my culture. And I mean, here I am in my 50s and I'm now learning about my culture and trying to figure out who I am, my identity. And it's like, I feel like I have like been so far behind. I'm so far behind is what I feel like. And yet my in chronological years age, half of my life's over. So, you know, um, so <laughs> I, naturally. yeah, I really wish that adoptive parents and foster parents would appreciate, you know, who their um, child is and especially the international to take in that consideration of the culture and, and um, appreciate that too. Yes, mine um, were very dismissive of my Korean heritage as well. And so I, I'm like you, I'm learning a lot about Korea now. And so I did, I, I bought into it. So that's the thing as an adoptee, you kind of buy into your parents' beliefs as well. So for many years, I, I dismissed it. And 
I oftentimes I would forget that I was Korean, and of course, until I was reminded that I wasn't. Um, so I, I felt like I was white, but I'm not. So when you look at pictures of me and my family, um, it's very jolting, or for me, it's very jolting because it's obvious that we came from different places. But you know, everything that we're saying, I think, also is very feels very threatening to adoptive parents. And so I don't want to dismiss how they feel either. Um, so what would you guys say to those parents who feel threatened or hurt by the longing of the adoptees to know their cultures and to know their stories or they search for their birth parents? So what would you guys say to those parents? I would say, and I, I mean, this might come off as kind of harsh, but it's what you sign up for. When you adopt someone from another culture, there are going to be unique issues that they will experience. Well, like I was saying with wanting to know who I got what from or wanting to know about where more where I came from, um, those things are are going to happen. Everybody has that longing to know, you know, whose laugh they got or whose eyes they have. So it's not a slight against the adoptive parents, but it's it's just the knowing and the curiosity and the wonder. And I think if you don't have to experience that ever, you don't really understand that that is natural and it's not meant to be hurtful. It's just part of life. Yeah, good point. Do you guys have something? Yeah, I, I want to share that my two mothers were the exact opposite. They put, when I came, there was cue cards all over the kitchen wall, written in Korean. She got somebody to write it in Korean and then what it is in English underneath it. Everywhere in the kitchen were these cue cards. And she even cooked bulgogi for me. And she even made kimchi for me. So, and that probably part of it comes with the fact that she was a teacher. She that's kind of how, you know, educated people behave. And she really wanted to make sure that I, she was knowing, she wanted me to know that I embrace or she embraces Korean culture. And uh, we did a lot of things with Korean culture and Korean um, activities. So she, she was um, uh, very proactive in that part. I love that. So that's mm -hmm. a, an example of what to do. That's great. And it's, this, yeah. I mean, it's not simple, but it is a pretty simple thing too. Yes. So I'm very grateful to her for that. Um, even, I, I, even one of the older sister, her mom, we call, we called them Eddie mom and Coma because their names were Adeline and Corolla, Adeline and Corolla. So Eddie, Adeline was Eddie mom. And Corolla was coma. <laughs> and coma one time watched me catch grasshoppers and then feed them through uh, the weed of the grass, the, 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 the stem of the grass. And I made like a grasshopper shish kebab. <laughs> and I, I, I was roasting them in the campfire. <laughs> and then, I asked Komam, is do you want some? 
and she actually ate one with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brave mom. I love that it. Is. <laughs> so I have to say, there's so many good things about about them that I have to say. Good. Oh, that's great. That's um, a great example. Um, yeah. I, somebody did tell me, and I thought this was pretty poignant, so this might be helpful um, for adoptive parents or foster parents. Um, so think about your biological children and then think about having to lo losing them or having to give them up but then being told that they're never allowed to mention them again, mention that child again, because you have a replacement child and you have to put all your love and attention in this new child, but you don't have to, but you can never yearn for your original child. And so it's kind of a reversal. And somebody told me that I thought, oh, that's a really good way to think about it for adoptive parents because adoptees, are often put into these families here in the States. And it's so, sometimes, not always, in Suki's case, that's a wonderful example of when it's not, but sometimes um, children are not given the latitude to be able to mourn the loss of their original families because it would be offensive to the adoptive parents. So, I mean, just maybe kind of have, have a little grace and um, understanding for your adoptees, that there is that longing, whether they recognize it or not. And we're all older now, so I don't want to say we're old, but we're all older now, so we can <laughs> recognize that we actually had that loss, whether or not we realized it as children is another thing. Well, another, another thing too is for adoptive parents or foster parents to think about, you can ask them, what are they longing for? So that's the uh, same question for us. What are we longing for? We're longing for to know our culture and know our um, who we are. So if they have longings, what are they longing for? How would they go about finding out you know, uh, what they're longing for? They would do the same thing, want to search it out and, and figure out what's, what's good or whatever, what, what they want to know about what they're longing for. So I think that's another great question to put for, forth for adoptive parents and foster parents. Well, I think the three of you have shared so much of your stories and advice, and it's just been so great to sit here and listen. <laughs> um, do you have any last thoughts before we wrap up? I did have one last thought, um, and it was about what can they do to help their children not be like a foreigner in their own families? Because I've heard this from other people who have adopted, and it drives me crazy, but they'll introduce their children whether they're foreign or not, as their adopted child. You don't have to say your adopted child, just say your child, you know, because that I think makes them feel more on the outside and not as one of the family members. That's a great point. I think um, from the adoptive parent standpoint, sometimes I think they're doing that to preemptively tell people, why their child is of a different race. Yeah. But it you're right. It does make the child feel like an outsider. Or I agree too. And even in social media or the news, when they say they were an adoptive child, it's like, it's their child. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great yeah. matter. They're just, they're, the, they're yours. Mm -hmm. Right. 
one thing I wanted to share with regards to that is that you are as foreign to yourself as you feel. So if you feel comfortable in your skin for whoever, whatever you are, others will follow that too. And I think as adoptive children, we're, we tend to label ourselves, but we're just a different circumstance. We're really, we don't have to label ourselves as a different category. We're human beings experiencing love and compassion and family relationships in different levels. But because we look different or don't have a genetic makeup that is the same of somebody else, doesn't put you in a different category. I, I think I taught my children that you just are as comfortable as if you are comfortable with who you are in your skin, because your race cannot be erased, okay? Your race is not erasable. So feel comfortable about who you are and what you are. And once you do, others around you will likely feel the same. And that was the most powerful thing that I think I came away with with my relationship with myself as an adoptee uh, is that it's just a circumstance. It's like having diabetes. Diabetes is not your condition. It's just a thing you live with. It's not who you are. Absolutely. I like that, Suki. And I also agree that your narrative is what you make of it. And so yeah. because of all you know, the struggles that I've been through, I could easily, you know, make it into something different, but I can shape my narrative of how I want to, to still be and own that I'm a Korean American adoptee and be proud of that. Mm -hmm. What my thing for adoptive parents and foster parents is that do not ever feel like that if you don't know something or if you're wondering something, there's no stupid question. Go find somebody to talk with, ask that question. The more that you can, um, guide in the conversation and have those questions, the more you're going to learn and grow. And the more that the adoptee or the foster child is going to see and realize that you are growing as well. And then that will make them feel comfortable as well. And then it doesn't feel like a us, them, or, you know, whatever. Um, so that's what I would highly recommend. There's this beautiful thing now called the internet. <laughs> Which honestly, I think if we had that when we were growing up, we might be talking to three, four different people right now. Ha having that community, having people to reach out to, having those resources, mm -hmm. knowing we're not alone because I see other people that look like me, or I see a map of Korea. That's where I came from, you know, and just having having found Yangju um, many years earlier perhaps. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I think parents um, use the internet. There's so many resources out there. It's such a gift, you know, do the work. Um, it's, it's part of the, the thing that you sign up for and <laughs> your child will thank you someday, you know? Yeah. Yes. Oh, with that, that's beautiful. All right. So thank, we want to thank you guys so much for being with us here today and as you know the three of you are near and dear to my heart so thank you <laughs> yeah thank Beautiful. you for sharing your stories thank you, thank you very much thank you for the invitation yes pleasure to be and thank you so much for joining us today for let's talk please subscribe rate and review 
wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon.